We've come once again to the book of 1 Kings. Now we're at 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 9 this morning, as we would ask the Lord to teach us from his word. But let me read this passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we confess what we believe most deeply, uh, what we know to have been even the Lord Jesus' own understanding, that all of Scripture is breathed out by your Holy Spirit. It is the word that comes from your mouth, and by your Spirit comes to us. And by your Spirit, opening our hearts to understand it, uh, plants your word in us causes it to grow in order to bear fruit and likeness to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray for that. Uh, we pray that we would be those who are not just simply hearers of the word, but those who are doers of the word. We pray we would be like those that Jesus said uh, would build their houses upon the rock, uh, the rock of the word of Christ. And then when all sorts of storms and winds would assail us, we would be able to stand firm. We pray that we would be those who have been so well instructed by your word that we grow in respect to it so that we would never be uh, anything like children uh, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that we'd be so grounded in Christ, so grounded in your word, that we would be able to face the challenges of the day and the spiritual warfare that comes from the devil and principalities and powers of darkness and having done everything that we're supposed to do to stand firm. We would pray for this. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us by your sovereign strength and power and grace. Keep us in abiding in Christ, living for him, loving him and serving him, rejoicing in him as those who are bought by his blood. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, we begin with Psalm 11, verse 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I, I'm going to be beginning with this question, I think, quite a lot, because I want us to appreciate something. We are living in the reality of this question. We are living in a time of crisis and judgment, and the foundation of our culture, uh, far more than simply our nation, 
the foundations are being destroyed. We are perhaps seeing uh, in Western civilization the final stages of a transformation that's been ongoing for quite a while. We have departed from the Judeo-Christian foundation, which was substantial but never perfect, though always distinct from paganism. We're seeing the transformation to paganism once again. Let me repeat the observation of Abraham Kuyper. Uh, this application of the concept of pagan and paganism to our culture, it's hardly new. Because back at the beginning, well, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when that great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper was invited to the United States to lecture at Princeton Seminary, he saw and framed the struggle this way. He said, do I know of another solution of this fundamental world problem enabling me better to defend my Christian faith in this hour of sharpest conflict against renewed paganism, collecting its forces and gaining day by day? Do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism, the idols or the living God. Now, as we have pointed out from the first chapter of the book of Romans, uh, the second half of that first chapter, verses 18 to 32, that there the Apostle Paul, as he begins to expound the gospel, lays out the cause and the culmination of what paganism is all about. It begins in the rejection of the true knowledge of the true God. Uh, it replaces that true worship of the true God with a veneration and worship of creation itself as ultimate, and then it fully immerses itself in the practices of every dimension of sexual liberty. So let's be clear about our response. And that's the theme of this series. Even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and culture, the call to all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. Now, in expressing this, I've also anchored this to the theme of the Apostle Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12, as, as a prayer that actually and faithfully states what it looks like to remain faithful to the mission, faithful to who we are, and faithful to what we are called to do. Paul prays for a number of things to be done in the lives of the believers at Colossae who were themselves facing the resurgence of a paganism, a new form of paganism called Gnosticism. But this is what Paul prays, that God would fill believers with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that God would enable them then to live a life worthy of Christ that they would please Christ in every respect, that they would bear fruit in every good work, that they would grow and increase in the knowledge of God, but further that they would be strengthened with all power, the power of the glory of Christ, in order that they would have all endurance and patience with joy, and that they would finally give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Now, this is perhaps one of the very best pictures 
of what the New Testament gives to us of what it means for Christians to be faithful to our mission in this world, faithful to who we are and faithful to what we are called to do. Now then, with respect to the stories of Elijah and Elisha, uh, these are helpful to an understanding of our calling because their lives and their ministries existed in a period of crisis and judgment, when the biblical foundations were being destroyed, when paganism was overrunning the northern kingdom. So in them, we have an example of what God has done with his faithful servants as an encouragement and guide to us in our day. Now, this is our objective, uh, to gain from these sacred stories what could help us in our mission today. So now we come to this next episode in Elijah's life. And for today's theme, I would express it this way. God does what he does with us, for us, and to us. In order to require of our faith that we would believe and trust that God is everything he claims to be on behalf of those that he saves. Now, we can divide this particular text into three parts, naturally into three parts. First would be the hiding of Elijah. Uh, secondly would be the provision for Elijah. And then thirdly, the future of Elijah. Now, my intention is to focus on simply this first part today, the first really of three messages on this passage. And so I want us to be looking at the hiding of Elijah, which is presented to us in verses 1, 2, and 3. I'll, I'll read those again. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. Now, we should remind ourselves of the context, which we find specifically in verse 1, which introduces the hiding that, Abra, that, A, that Elijah is going to go into. God confronts Ahab through Elijah. God responds to Ahab and his pagan transformation of the northern kingdom and all of the breaking of, of his commandments with the promised covenant curses. There's going to be no dew and no rain which will prove that God is true to his word, that what God threatens, God will do. And when Elijah delivers this word to Ahab, he departs and he hides. So the question before us is, why this hiding? Why is he supposed to hide himself? He does so at God's command. It's not because uh, Elijah is now running in fear, but God has commanded him to hide. So the question is naturally, why? What's the purpose for this hiding? Uh, is it simply uh, security, Elijah's security? Or could it be his spiritual solitude? Or could it be more? Well, I think we need to approach it from this standpoint. More often than not, God has more than one reason for just about anything and everything that he does. And so there's there's likely multiple reasons for why God has Elijah hide. I want us to consider three. First would be this. I think it's a matter of practical wisdom that we would all agree with. 
that God hides Elijah in order to secure Elijah's safety from Ahab. You know, God has precipitated this crisis, the crisis of judgment, because he sends Elijah to Ahab. He has Elijah confront Ahab. And this exposes Elijah to Ahab's evil response. We know because it shows up later in the story of Elijah that danger from Ahab is real. In the next chapter, when, uh, when Elijah does reveal himself and he meets up with the prophet Obadiah, Obadiah says this to Elijah. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Now, he says that because Jezebel pursued a policy of search and destroy. True prophets had targets on their backs. Discovery meant death. And the prophet Obadiah, as much as he could, was hiding and feeding these targets. Now, God, in essence, does for Elijah what Obadiah was doing for these prophets. He was hiding Elijah beyond the king's reach. Now, that, that ought to uh, bring to mind, in fact, a number of the Psalms that we would find where this theme of hiding is quite prominent. In fact, we had such a passage in Psalm 17 that we read during our worship this morning. So reflecting back to Psalm 17, specifically verses 8 and 9, listen to this prayer. The psalmist prays, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Or further, uh, Psalm 27, verse 5, for he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Or even a third one of, of many that you find in the Psalms. Psalm 31, 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So what these Psalms testify to is that there's this reality that God's people are often in danger in this world. These prayers are examples of how they called upon God and prayed to God and prayed that God would hide them and keep them safe. And they teach them that God does answer such prayers, though not in every case. God's purposes for what believers must endure is often hidden from us. Scriptures give us insight, though, into the ways of God. For instance, if you think about the story of Joseph, God did not hide Joseph away from the dangers of the evil conspiracy of his brothers. They, they wanted to do away with him. Now, God did deliver Joseph from death, which was being thought about, uh, but not from being sold into slavery. But Joseph as a prophet of God, uh, when he ultimately reconciled with his brothers many years later, uh, said this in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or another story from the Old Testament would be the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. In Daniel 3, 16 to 18, 
uh, these three uh, say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O God. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three young men wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know that God most certainly could save them, and they believed that God would save them. But in any case, whether he would or not was truly up to God himself, and their service to God did not depend upon their being delivered in this particular case. Now, the point is this. What God does for Elijah in hiding him from danger isn't always the case, but it's not unique either. This is something that the people of God can always pray for God to do. It really should be part of our prayers. We live in a time of crisis, a time in which God's judgment is being poured out. We live in a time which, with all of this going on, we can and should pray, Lord, keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who would do us violence, our deadly enemies who surround us. Because in this hiding, the lesson for our faith is this. We ought to trust God to keep us and to hide us in times of trouble and harm. But being protected from worldly danger is always and only a temporary thing. We need a far greater hiding from God, far beyond what evil people in the world could ever do to us. And we have that far greater hiding. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says to the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because of our salvation, because our salvation by grace through faith in Christ, we have this heavenly and eternal hiding place in Christ. This is really what inspired uh, Charles Wesley to write that great hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide. Till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Now, the second purpose that we can, uh, I think, actually discern within the hiding of um, Elijah uh, is also connected with respect to Ahab. But here it's not a matter of safety. Actually, it's a matter of seeing uh, that, that there, 
Let me put it this way. It's a very good inference that in the midst of this, God was also working on Ahab. Hiding Elijah was part of the message of judgment to Ahab. But it was not just a message of judgment. There, in one sense, was the potentiality for a message of grace. Think about this for a moment. To blanket Ahab with silence from God is to emphasize that God has withdrawn Elijah because God has withdrawn his word as a means of grace because this is a time of judgment. The drought of the dew and the rain naturally carries with it a drought with respect to the word of God. Now, this presents Ahab with a choice. Ahab can look for Elijah, or Ahab could look for God. It is as if God says to Ahab, if I shut the heavens, I can hide my servant. Why then do you not turn to me and seek after me? But Ahab does not. As the months go by and as the drought continues, Ahab has all the pieces of evidence before him that he should have that God is sovereign and not Baal. The dew and the rain have stopped according to the word of Yahweh. And yet Ahab seeks Elijah rather than repentance and seeking the true God. Now, the reaction of Ahab prompts a doctrinal observation about fallen human nature. Ahab, Ahab's response really does show that idolaters become like the idols they worship. They become foolish and blind. In the story of Jonah, there's this great observation that Jonah makes from the belly of the great fish. And the NIV translation captures this idea really, really well. So in Jonah 2.8, we read these words. This is part of Jonah's prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Instead of seeking God in repentance, Ahab sets up a bolo. You know what a bolo is. It's, it's one of those uh, police things. Be on the lookout, right? So he sets up this bolo for Elijah, as if Elijah, rather than God, is the ultimate source of the drought. Now, this is fallen human nature. This is its nature and its blindness. Ahab clings to his worthless idols, his Baal and his Asherah, and he forfeits the grace that could be his if he were to repent before the true and living God. Ahab was dead in his trespasses and sins, and only a sovereign work of God's grace could bring him from death to spiritual life. But throughout the story of Ahab, as God bears witness to his sovereignty over all of creation, Ahab will reject the witness of these great deeds time and again, these great deeds that God does. And Ahab will continue to cling to his worthless idols. And he forfeits the grace that could be his. Then thirdly, returning again to the question of Elijah's hiding. Is there something more than Elijah's safety? Are there further lessons for Elijah? Now I want us to consider this. By 
putting Elijah, hiding Elijah by this brook. Apparently it's geologically in a deep ravine. God has shrunk the life of Elijah to a very small orbit of activity. This will last for many months, um, possibly beyond a year before the brook dries up. Elijah has little to do. He has no real place to go. He can only expect his daily routine to be interrupted twice by the visits from the ravens. Clearly, this is a time of waiting. Elijah has to wait on God's timing, on God's next move. And there's no hint that God is telling Elijah at this point what is coming next, at least not until the brook dries up. So the question is this, what is God doing with Elijah during this isolation and solitude where he has no fellowship except God? Now, because the text doesn't tell us directly or concretely, we are left to a certain amount of speculation here, but not to any open or wild or far-fetched ideas. Rather, we can and must speculate based on this biblical truth about God. And that main truth here is this. God does not waste time. And God does not waste our time. And God did not, does not want us to waste the time that he gives us. Let me say that again. God does not waste time. God does not waste our time. And God does not want us to waste the time he gives to us. For he says in scripture, specifically Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, and I'm going to give you the phraseology from three different translations, that we are to redeem the time, or we are to make the best use of our time, or we are to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This means there is some kind of time redeeming opportunity that God is giving to Elijah. The question is, how would Elijah go about redeeming this time? He has minimal living conditions, a simple routine. It's adequate, uh, and he has adequate but, but, but not a sumptuous provision. His schedule is constant. You and I look at this, and we ought to say, there are a lot of opportunities here to go stir-crazy. Or there are a lot of opportunities to deepen one's fellowship and communion with God. And we are compelled, excuse me, we are compelled, I think, to believe that Elijah redeemed the time, this time of solitude, with deepening his fellowship and communion with God. Now, Scripture and Christian history together tell us that solitude is best for deepening our fellowship with God. It is so often the case that when we are taken out of the world, that there are possibilities for more of the world to be taken out of us. Now, you and I know we live in a culture uh, and a people 
that thrive on busyness rather than quietness. It's natural for us to gravitate toward activity rather than focused attention on Christ. We fill up our days with things to do rather than filling our days with the word and prayer as means of grace. But take us away from the world in some sense, and then there's opportunity for much of the world to be taken out of us. And so really the question could be posed like this. Could we ever redeem such time as Elijah has before him? Could we even spend a full day alone with God and our Bibles? Could we go for a day or even half a day or even an hour with no phone, no people, no agenda, but just time with our Bibles and God? Would we even want to try? If our mission and calling and identity and purpose begin, as Paul prays that it does, with being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then we need solitude with God. We need to deepen our fellowship and communion with Christ. Consider then, as I close, two passages in the New Testament that speak to this matter of communion with Christ. Luke 10, 38 to 42. This is the story of Jesus with his disciples visiting the home of Martha and Mary. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The good portion was that of being attentive in the presence of Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from him as the most necessary thing, even more so than busyness in the cause of Christ. And this truth in this story is rooted in what Jesus teaches in John 15, verses 4 through 9. For there Christ said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father was glorified 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The foundations that we as Christians must keep solidly before us begins with abiding in Christ. For apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Only by abiding in him, the only place where his word can then abide in us, will we bear much fruit and glorify the Father and demonstrate to all that we are true followers of Jesus. To that end, then, may the Spirit of the living God move us, we pray. Amen. Our Father and our God, we know that uh, Elijah, your servant, was used mightily of you. But here at the beginning of these stories, we see that you hid him for a very long time in a place of isolation and solitude where the only substance to a schedule was that of communion and fellowship with you. And we would pray, Father, not that you would send us out into some desert place and like the monks of old, but rather that even in the busyness of our lives here and now, we would seek and find solitude, fellowship, communion with you, that we would abide in the Lord Jesus, that we would know that apart from Christ we can do nothing, that when we look to Martha and Mary, we might see more of Martha in ourselves than Mary, but we would hear Jesus telling us that Mary's choice is the good portion that shall not be taken from her. We would see her example and pursue that as that which you would bless. Father, we do pray for this. We cannot know and understand truly what you're going to do with us in these days of crisis and judgment unless truly we abide in you and your words abide in us. And then, as we ask for your direction and for your will, you would be pleased to answer us and enable us to bear much fruit that we might bring glory to the Father and so prove that we are disciples. It's this which we desire, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.